Hey, this is Craig Finn. My new record, Legacy Rentals, is about memory. How we remember friends that are gone, places that have changed, major events that are part of our past. The songs are memorials, incantations, affirmations, legends, and prayers. Like all stories, they're subject to the imperfection and limitations of memory, the distortions that happens to our own histories when stretched by time and distance. These small adjustments become part of the stories themselves. That's how I remember it. This is a podcast that examines the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode will feature a discussion between myself and one creator about the role that memory plays in their art. These conversations reveal the different way each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. My guest today is Fred Armisen. I met Fred probably 25 years ago when he was the drummer in the band Trenchmouth. My band Lifter Puller and Trenchmouth were label mates on Skeen Records and played a few shows together. Trenchmouth were frequent visitors to the Skeen Records house where I lived for a few years. After the demise of Trenchmouth, Fred went on to have an amazing career in comedy, TV, and film. He was cast member on Saturday Night Live, created the long-running show Portlandia with partner Carrie Brownstein, and has worked also on Documentary Now, Los Spookies, Seth Meyers, and literally too many things to name here. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with The way that I remember it Thanks so much for being here, Fred. My pleasure. And uh, it's really, it's really um, nice to, you know, to hear that, you know, that we've known each other for 25 years. You know, my memory of being at, in Minneapolis and at the skiing house and everything, it's very much alive, you know, and Minneapolis in general, like is kind of like that sensibility is continued on through like when we started doing Portlandia, like that world that we lived in of of going to like those cafes and uh, the fact that everyone had like record labels and stuff to me, you know, like project a bomb. And to me, that world that we lived in is what informed a little bit of Portlandia. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, I want to start with one thing though, cause I'm starting everyone with this. Do you think you have a good memory? Do you, do you consider yourself to have a good memory? I think I do. I think I do. Um, even if I can't put into words, you know, the things that I remember, I like the images and sounds for my whole life, feel very alive. So are those, uh, is that kind of, you think how you remember you, in, in flashes of images or sounds or that's, um, those are senses that you rely on for memory, so to speak? Definitely, I mean, when I land in a different um, country, like if, I, if I'm traveling or something, sometimes the smell will bring like back memories of like, oh, I remember this is what, you know, I don't know, what London smelled like and this is what it smells like, you know, like it, 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 then all of a sudden more memories come through from that. Yeah. Are there, are there smells or tastes that are like triggering in that way? Like that bring you back to a place in particular, like childhood and anything? I would, I would say, um, tropical heat because, um, uh, I spent a couple years in Brazil when I was a little kid. So if I'm ever in a situation where it's like kind of tropical, but it's a city, then it is kind of triggering. Then it's like, uh, I get the sensations of what it was like to be in Rio de Janeiro. So, uh, for example, I, I was in Santiago, Chile, Chile, that like that kind of brought some of that. Mexico City is kind of like that. And, and once in a while, LA is like that. Once in a while, I'll be, there's like a moment where I'll be like, it's tropical heat, but I'm in a city. Then I'll just think about what it was like being in Brazil. One of the reasons I wanted to ask this is I had a thesis going into this when I talked to people that creators will largely say they have good memories. And I yeah. think I, I do. I mean, I think like mo the average person's like, I have a terrible memory and that pre 
protects them from forgetting people, you know, or forgetting to pay their bills or something, you know? And then, but like, I think there's a pride in most writers and creators. It's like, I remember it and I use it, right? I mean, it seems like something we all use to create in some way. Yeah, it's almost kind of part of our job, I think. Or, or, I mean, for a comedian, you know, I've got to, for me, I do have to remember accents. For example, if I'm doing like an impression of an accent or something, or I have to remember what somebody sounded like to do an impression. So I, I feel like we kind of have to rely on it. We meaning, I'm including you in that, but I'm just saying it. I do feel like it's part of our job to, you know, that kind of recollection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. You know, and I, I, I'm going to skip ahead because you mentioned Minneapolis. I wanted to ask you about that because we met sometime in the mid-90s. And to be as much as I say I have a good memory, the 90s are a time that blurs together. But I'd say mid-90s sometime we met. It might be, you know, it might be more towards the early 90s. Like we, it might be somewhere in like 93 or 94. That would be about right. I graduated college in 93 and moved back to Minneapolis. So it'd be after June of 93. But um, I do remember going down to a um, show in Mankato with Jeff Spiegel and Jessica Hopper and Jeff's Jeep and, and, and maybe meeting you there. I was probably the first, maybe the first time I, I don't think it was the first time I saw Trenchmouth. I think it was the first time I met you guys. But, you know, and then I moved in with Jeff and you guys would stay often. But I wanted to ask about Minneapolis at that time because you brought it up. What, what is your sort of memory of that Minneapolis at that time? You know, it was really... It felt very free. Like, it felt like this wide open, the houses, everything was very sort of spread out and strong. Like, all the houses were well built. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so where, like, we lived in Chicago, and we tended to, because it's such a big city, we kind of, um, sometimes it felt like you're drowning in it. You know, it's just too big of a city to really get a handle on. But Minneapolis was, like, the first city that I could get a handle on and make my way around and, like, go from house to house or venue to venue, and it felt a little bit like kind of um, easy to like feel a part of right away. And so the people we met, the other thing was they weren't jaded. It's everyone was like running a record label or had their own band. And it was very optimistic. Like there was a sort of like, hey, we're building something and never got lectured about like the scene or what the scene is supposed to be or like this band is uncool or cool. It was all very inclusive. It was like, uh, I remember... It's many different kinds of bands, and it was all great. We're, you know, we all supported each other. And like I said, yeah, the, like I remember the speedboat, which I guess was in St. Paul, but the speedboat coffee shop, just to me, in Chicago, those were run by adults, like grown-ups who had coffee shops for business people, you know, t- for the morning. But in Minneapolis, it was more like kind of kids running it. And somewhere in there was the, the idea that, like, we were kind of the... I don't know, the adults of that scene, you know? And I just loved it. I loved the venues. I loved the accent. I remember being very um, just drawn to like how people talked, (laughs) you know? And then like, then I've got a separate thing. I think I came into Minneapolis. I came in hot because I love the music from Minneapolis. So uh, to me, the the, the fact that like, that both Husker Du and Prince came from Minneapolis, I was, I'm still... So blown away that all that music came from there. Right, right. So I, I, st- I still can't believe it. I, yeah, me, me neither. I, I, my, my parents moved from Boston, and I always feel like lucky that I got to grow up and I got to see the replacements at the 7th Street entry and Who's yeah. Could Do and all this. 
Prince was bigger already, so you know he wasn't quite as accessible. But what you brought up is something that I've thought because I've lived in New York for 22 years, and it's easy to feel in New York you're living in the shadow of the city. Like you can say like there's something happening in New York that I'm not invited to right now. Yes, it's really exactly. cool. Exactly. In Minneapolis, you felt like you were experiencing the best part of the city always, you know, like Exactly. And and we were and we were guests and we felt that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I was thinking in in prepare, preparing, I remember there being a big show. It was Trenchmouth Candy Machine. And I, I, at First Avenue in the main room. And, yeah. you know, I wonder, I mean, were your shows that big in Chicago? No, 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 no. Like Minneapolis was like a big ego boost for Trenchmouth because that's where we could play a place like um, First Avenue solidly. And not, we didn't have to push to like, let's try to get people out. That actually felt like a real gig, like a real show that people knew all the songs and turned out for. Um, so yeah, that definitely felt that way. And it was also really friendly. I remember people taking us out for breakfast to the egg and I, Yeah, you know, I don't know. It's something, something really just worked there. I'm pretty sure that uh, punch drunk opened that main room show and that had Galen from the hold steady in it. So there's like all these, you know, what tangled webs we weave. One of the I, things, I mean, <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say really quick, my memory of meeting you the first time, which might not have been the first time was in the house. Like I remember at the skiing house, I just remember you being there, mm -hmm. but I don't know if that was our first meeting. I, I mean, we may have met briefly before that, but you guys were would come up and stay quite often. And here's here's the thing that I was also thinking that was that is so interesting to me um, is that Trenchmouth, and I was a huge fan. The music was dead serious, and there, there wasn't anything wacky about it. There wasn't anything, you know, it was it was serious as a heart attack. It had three of the funniest people in it. Um, yeah. I mean, you, Damon, and Wayne could go would go almost into skits. Yes. Um, you had kind of good cop, bad cop routines that I think you'd worked out when you showed up at things like this. Yeah, um, that that existed in the van too. Those guys really made me laugh. They're so funny. I've, I've even taken some of those bits from you know when we were in the van, and I've used them on. Uh, at, on Portlandia. Yeah, it, the the music was, you know, I don't know why that was. Like, I don't know if we supported goofy music anyway for us. Like, it, it, I, I don't know. We just weren't comfortable with, like, letting that bleed into, you know, what we were. And we were so, we idolized The Clash and Fugazi so much that it was like, there was no other way. That's the way we were going to decide it to be. But maybe it was like a good... I don't know, it might have been a good escape, like when we were finally got to goof around and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I mean, I, Damon called me up um, while, I mean, there's so many things that that live on from that. But, you know, Damon called me up uh, at that house. I was living at the Skeen Records house and the phone rang and I answered it. And Damon said, oh, hey, I heard Lifter Puller is going to put out a record on Skeen. And you know what Skeen Records is about? smoking weed and making money and you know then <laughs> we put that on our record and then he had another one where he said you know i i got one for you i got one and he said it's um i'm like sunny d because i got the good stuff kids go for you should do that and i put that in a song a hold steady song and then oh, he had a <laughs> then and i carried that one around for like five years and yeah. then uh and then i then there was another one which i didn't use which that i remember he said you know it should be like you're going up and talking to this girl and then you say but like skiing records she wasn't buying it oh <laughs> I, think, I, I, th I think that was like a, a little diss but um 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's all these like funny things that that even were so funny I took them. But then I think about the music; it was very Fugazi. It was of the era, I guess, right? DC hardcore, you know. You know, I'm glad we did it that way. I don't. I can't just pick. I just can't imagine what else we would be like. Well, know? I think the Clash might have like a lighthearted moment. I don't know about being wacky like Weird Al, but but like showing a little bit of joy or something, which I guess you guys were groovy. Yeah, I mean it was it was danceable. So you know, there's, so there's something in there that the fact that there's percussion and congas and stuff does kind of speak to dance. You know, when you look back at like the bands you were playing with and stuff, like did it feel like an uphill? I mean, you were so much per- more percussive and so much more groovy. Did that feel uphill or anything? I mean, absolutely everywhere we went, and like if only you know if I knew now, you know how cool it was you know to be a band like well i guess we knew we knew how cool it was we certainly didn't change you know to be like anybody else but yeah it was uphill but you know this speaks to memory as well because i've done interviews and i go yeah it was really rough it was uphill we played some you know a lot of shows to nobody but then i'm like if i put myself to the test of memory you know there's minneapolis those are great shows san francisco you know berkeley and then I can keep adding up shows that I'm like, well, actually, that was those were great. People turned out. It wasn't as big as other bands, but it looked full to me and people bought merch. So it's kind of I, I sometimes have to put myself to the test to go like, you know, we we could afford our van. We could afford to eat. We certainly were not suffering like we didn't have to split a, a you know, a can of soup or anything. It was we ate OK. And so so. And we toured. We toured all the time. So sometimes I do think it was actually pretty okay. I wonder, this is one of the kind of questions I have is with, that I'm asking people. Do you think the good stuff over over time, the good stuff, just like your memory kind of blocks out some of the like the bad stuff and the good stuff becomes these peaks? Yes. And I, and I think that's like a human, I don't know, is that a way we survive? <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's also because I really appreciate it too. Like those moments where we're laughing in the van or... Also p- playing with other bands. So, so now when I see the names of bands, I'm like, hey, we played with them and that was a great show. That, that really I, I outshines everything. I'm, and I'm so glad. I'm so glad I could see the name No Means No and not go, oh, what a bummer. I never got to see it. Like, no, I fully played with them. You know, you know it's, it's, that stuff is like, it, it's easy to take for granted too because touring, you get to play with those bands. Like we weren't stuck in Chicago. We were like, we were all over the place. Sure. Sure. I yeah. I mean, I, I, I was thinking, uh, I, we just did some shows in Toronto this weekend and one, one, I got shocked by the microphone. I was like, well, I was sitting at home during the pandemic. I never once thought, oh, you know, when you get shocked by the microphone, you, right. just, you just think about like, what if, when you play the show and everyone goes crazy, it's great. And you're like, yeah, oh, that hurt, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. but you don't want to, you, you're never going to, dwell on that given the, the other good things but i do think that your memory kind of blocks blocks the bad stuff out as a matter of survival and as a matter of perseverance yeah and some of those smells as well like i know it's such a cliche <laughs> but like some of those backstages are not even backstages my memory also of those backstages is a lot of stickers a lot of band stickers you know beer smell and then like all the you know all the bathrooms along the way on those rest stops and stuff. And I think my memory is also blocked out how we found venues when we were driving, <laughs> you know, because we, because first I don't, I can't imagine that we didn't have cell phones back then that we had to look at maps, you know, 
Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music, so I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Gee, I was going to ask, like, are there any parts of that era of, you know, either touring or just getting into punk rock that you remember, but it doesn't seem right. Like, like that's one to me. That's, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's definitely the biggest one of like, how on earth, not just that, how did we keep in touch with promoters? Cause every, I just can't imagine we didn't send emails back and forth, but how did we make all these arrangements, all those directions and stuff without a cell phone? I just really can't, uh, I just can't comprehend it. Same goes with like um, how we knew about bands. What was there? I mean, I guess there's there were records, but there was no there weren't websites or like you know there was something to go to to go like this is what's happening right now. How did we know about these bands? There was I mean there there's something very um, pioneering about. I just remember you know when I was young walking down the street and would say Descendants, <laughs> July 29th, 7 p.m. and you're like okay if I go to these coordinates at yes. these time this time I can see the Descendants. I have no other information but this thing that's stuck to a telephone pole. That's but I'm it. I'm going. And that's it. And that's that seems really quaint, really crazy. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, where you, you grew up in Long Island, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in Valley Stream on Long Island. I don't know if you had this when you were first going to shows, but one of the things in the eighties that was possible and I don't think it was as bad in Minneapolis, but when skinheads would come and ruin the show. Like, did oh, you yeah. ever? We, yes. The, um, yes. And that seems like something like, what? Did that happen? Like, you know, could, can that happen? And it happened, you know, sporadically, but it was, th those are very, very crystal clear memories. I had, I was thinking like that could be, you know, that's almost, it, it didn't happen every show, but it happened enough that it was like a rain out in baseball, you know, <laughs> like the scorekeeper would write SH like, yeah, it just didn't happen because the bad guys came. Yeah. The bad guys showed up totally our age. It was so weird that I'm like, wait, you're our age. And like, <laughs> how did you enter into this? Yeah. Uh, God, I haven't thought about that. That's really funny. You bringing that up. I'm, I can think of two distinct like real episodes where that was a problem and then vague ones from new york city like not quite skinheads but like tough guys that was a bummer like tough guys breaking beer bottles in a way that did not feel fun yeah i mean i think that maybe pre-kurt cobain this is one that i'm wondering if maybe some of this organization wasn't quite in place yet meaning I feel like the security, you know, or it just may have been a little more ramshackle on you. There would have been more chance for some bad guys to just overthrow the show. Yeah. Like, the, like I feel like some whoever was in charge was like, not my problem. You guys wanted to do a show. Knock yourselves out. Right, right. You know, 
one of the things I'm interested in is how, like, you know, as artists, we mine our memories. We make this, you know, uh, creative stuff. And then it becomes these benchmarks. So, like, you know, Bob Mould, Grant Hart, they go through their memories, their experiences. They make these songs. They create Zen Arcade. They put it out. And then they put it out in the summer of 84. And, and a bunch of us are like, that was the summer of Zen Arcade. And, yes. you know, my friend Pete got his license that summer. Um do you have do you have like albums or do you have um, those musical things that you associate with very specific times or seasons or anything? I'm glad it's good that you're asking that because I didn't know I wasn't prepared for this question, but I thought about this uh, yesterday. Um, I was going through like sometimes in my car, you know, there'll be like a playlist, and um, the Meat Puppets came up up on the sun. And that came up, that this exact thing that you're talking about, where I was like, I remember that as a transitional album um, where punk didn't have to be aggressive. and But it was a, that's a punk rock album to me. Me, Puppets, you know, just SST, anything on SST. So I remember me and my friends listening to Up on the Sun and accepting it as like hardcore. We're like, no, this is part of the hardcore scene. And that opening up, because I think that's 85, opening up the uh, idea of what a band could be and what punk could be. So, of course, you know, Husker Du is, like, in my blood. Like, I, I, that I could talk about forever. Um, but something about Up on the Sun was a real bridge to, guess what? That you can, there's even more you can do without being lame. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, the Meat Puppets and Minutemen were, were two for me, absolutely, that it was like, this is punk, but, you know, it is it? I don't know. It's, yeah. I'll take your word for it. I like it. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was all that, that was in that for me. I saw them at first Avenue right around, uh, they, I think they put it on an EP just after that. And I, I, I saw them right there. Are there like specific eras that you're drawn to, you know, movies, film books, music, like, are there, are there eras of your life that you just like that you, you find yourself always attracted to? Yeah, there are eras sort of before I had any consciousness, really. You know, like, if I go through, you know, let's let's go back. Let me start way early. And this is something I don't have a memory of. But something about 1971 with um, Paul McCartney and Ram, something in 1971 seems to speak to me, um, especially with that album. And then somewhere in 79, like when I was in might've been in sixth grade or something is when all of a sudden new waves started appearing on um, FM radio. So on SNL, I saw Blondie in 1980. I saw Devo on Fridays, something in 79 and 80 was like a break from classic rock. And for me as a kid, I know I'm going to buy records and these are going to be current records. So with Devo and Blondie, I was like, this is mine. And then of course with the clash. So Something in 79, yeah, 80, 81. And then the period I just mentioned, like 85, 84, with SST records, that is huge to me. I feel like we're both skipping over like 77 British punk, but it's almost like that's obligatory. I think, of course, yes. Right. 77, we all know it. It's all part of our record collections. But for me, 84 and 85 is when I really disappeared into punk rock. And that includes The Clash and everything. I got to see The Clash in 82. I got to see Devo in 81. 
I think Talking Heads 1980, I love, like with that period for them. Sure. And then something for some reason came, made, started making sense when Stereolab came out. Like when, like mid 90s, that was a real sweet spot for me of like continuing to love new music. Stereolab really like kept me going. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. All those funny. All those are important to me too. Eighty four, eighty five is when I and that that was when you know uh, Zen Arcade and Let It Be came out. Seventy one is actually the year I was born, so I kind of love that year. Oh yeah. In seventy nine, eighty, there was this KTEL New Wave record. Uh, it was like one of those compilations that came out at the end of the year, and it was called Rock eighty, and Whoa. it had all these bands on it, and that it was like really kind of formative for me. It had Gary Newman, Cars, Blondie, Call Me. It had My Sharona. It had uh, I could go oh, Rock and Roll Radio by the Ramones, but it was yeah, one of those yeah. like Order It Off TV records that my friend's yeah. brother got, and it was like. There's this new music, but there's two things that I think of a lot about. It was one is that when I first got MTV that first year, and turned it on, you know, my parents got cable, and I said, "Oh, the, look, there's all these this music," and I'd heard of none of it because it was all British stuff that wasn't on the radio. It was Haircut 100 and Duran Duran and Madness, Madness. Uh, and it blew my mind. And that is a very I love even going back now and watching like Human League videos because it really. Oh, I'm so with you. I'm so with you. Because the care they put into the videos, that was its own sensibility. And by the way, we said madness at the same time, I think pretty much. I So I just was in London and I had a night off and I went on a madness pub crawl. There's a beautiful um, oral history book about them. And we went to the all the pubs that they said they drank at because a lot of them are still there. Wow. They were up in Hampstead Heath, which se- they seemed too nice, to be honest. Yeah, maybe back then it was different well we we read further and we realized they said they went up there to look for rich girls no way (laughs) yeah it was cool it was cool the other thing that happened recently when i was like that that really touched me on this topic is in licorice pizza did you see that film Mm, yes there there was there's that scene it's sort of the toward the beginning where he goes out and does the tv in new york and there's like a variety show with i think it's lucille ball or someone like that and and they you know it's they they sing and dance and I was like, TV, that's what TV was like when I was like three and four years old. And it's not like that anymore. But I, I, I thought they did that so well. Yes, they, yes, they did. It really just ignited something in me. Yeah, because it was also the sort of, um, at the time, the sort of meaninglessness of, because they're not sketches. They're kind of sketches. They kind of, they're for no reason, like a <laughs> dance. So there, I definitely uh, gravitated towards that. And also... To your point about madness, um, before I'd ever been to England, I'd, my image of England was madness videos. Because you see how there's like a yellow hue to all the bricks? Everything's kind of yellow. I just thought, oh, that place looks great. And then when I finally went to England, it did look like that, that sort of green and yellow. The other uh, MTV video that like really sparks my memory is Falco der Commissar which is Falco, he's running in front of an, I think a police car, and it's such a European police car. Oh, I, I wanted to disappear into, I, I hadn't even been. I was like, that's where I wanna go. That with the little, you know, I, there, yeah. there was something about it. I, that, yeah, MTV really, um, it, that really inf- informed a lot of like visuals. I think I also remember watching early MTV also already being snobby, like because I liked Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. And then when normal bands started also having videos, I remember going like, those aren't videos. 
<laughs> yeah, it felt like some of these new, like I remember when Sticks got their video, and I was like, they, they can't have a video. Yeah, like, right, that's these, a, like, yeah, this I'm is like, for like Haircut 100, you know? Like, that, yeah, <laughs> that Haircut 100 video, boy, that was, I like, I it's so vivid to me, like just thinking of that video, like, that you know, because uh, I think it had palm trees in it, and, and that sound, that was a good song. It was a boy meets girl. Is that the? Is that the? No, I was thinking of um, love plus one. Love plus one. Not done the love plus one. A lot of saxophone in that music too, which I continue to love. Um, And I think you do, huh? I do. Do you not like saxophone? Love it, love it. But it's not. um, It's not an easy uh, decision. Like I think it's a. I'm I'm not going to use the word controversial, but like it's a discussion. (laughs) Like. It, it, it exists way more than I think people think it does. I think. It's classic, too. If you go back to, like, early rock and roll, it's there a lot. It's, it's kind of like their distorted guitar. Right. Yeah. It's. I mean, to me, it's... I love... I have a sax when I play in this with the solo band, and it's just such a great instrument to have. It, it can do... You know, yeah. it can be not a guitar. Yeah. Uh, which is... <laughs> says a lot. Um, yeah. Something you said earlier about Portlandia, like was the trench mouth, the touring, all that, the rock and roll, does that end up being like a memory bank that then becomes Portlandia? Completely. Completely. That, all of that comes from my experiences of being in trench mouth, touring uh, places, you know, in every town we would visit whatever, you know, alternative bookshop there was or record store. And there's one sketch that we did which was we go uh, um, to a recording studio and the, the, this guy has a home studio and he just keeps bragging about like the fact that he has like, you know, the, the Beach Boys, you know, soundboard, mixing board. Um, though that's people we knew as sound people all over, all sure. over the place. You know, just, you know, you, you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like from touring, especially with Lifter Puller, I got the most stories for the rest of my life because, you know, when you're saying like, do we have a place to stay? Does someone have a place we can stay? Yeah. You're putting yourself out there. You know, I mean, most people have not begged for a floor to crash on. And four people. Right. And, And the people who are willing to take you home are not always, you know, in the mainstream. Hopefully they have a good agenda, but, but I mean, things happen. Yeah. And, and how about like finding directions to their house at whatever one o'clock in the morning? By the way, how about how late we played? What? Yeah, twelve yeah. thirty. <laughs> what? That's that's not allowed. Why would we play so late? I mean, I, now I'm like, if I do stand up, I'm like, let's do eight o'clock. Oh, I mean, that's why I like UK shows better, best, you know, because they're like, you going on at eight fifteen? I'm like, thank oh, you, yeah. thank yeah. you, thank you. Um, so when you, when you and Carrie got together and created Portlandia, was there sort of a, a, oh, I, did you have like a stack? That's what it it was like. I mean, you could say that it was the fuel of, of the show of just like it, 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 we barely had to discuss it. We barely had to discuss it because it's also like the people you meet as promoters. It's also the van mechanics you meet in Baltimore or, or whatever, like all you're, you know, when you're in a band, you're face to face with real workers everywhere, Dine, people, you know, diners and, uh, and all that stuff. So those characters, you know, and the thing is, those characters that we met, we just repeat 
what, you know, we'd get into the van and make fun of them. And we would, you know, repeat all that stuff over and over again. I remember we had this, um, we toured Italy and the, our tour manager, as we were requesting eggs and orange juice and stuff, he came back and he said, uh, the orange is over. <laughs> meaning, there, meaning there's no much, no right. more orange juice. But we repeated that, a, you know, a thousand times. Yeah. I mean, they're, 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 even though I think there's actually Portlandia skit like this where they just list names to each other, you yeah. know, like, like it's, <laughs> yeah. oh, and Ian, and Ian, and, you know, yeah. um, and, and my partner, Angie says like when, when we get together with someone that she knows is from like rock and roll, she'll be like, J- don't, don't do the listing. Don't do the listing. Cause like, then I like, if you, there's no verbs, even you just, the, you guys just start saying names to each other. Yeah. And the, it, uh, it's like, I'll, yeah, I'll try not to do the listing, you know, but, um, but then it, then it happens. Then you're just like Roy Binion. Yep. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's so many things that are as part of that touring world that be, that, you know, you, I mean, I think that's everyone, I'm sure you say it, but I think everyone says this feels like a Portlandia skit there. When you get into something that's a little, uh, yeah. heightened, you know, um, yeah. I was at a show that was kind of middling. Uh, and, and so like the audience through the whole show couldn't figure out whether to stand up and rock out or sit uh-huh. down and it yeah. was kind of up and down. And I was like, this kind of seems like, you know, that, that would have been a good one. <laughs> the, should we, should we sit or should we stand? Yeah. It seems like that, you know? And, um, but these impersonations and references, which you've done, uh, always, it seems like one, one of your great skills and you create character like, um, Ferrisito, is that that was the, yeah, the yeah, drummer, yeah. right? Yeah, or Ian yeah. Rubbish. Um, yeah. Crisis of Conformity. You sort of nod at moments and eras that we all remember. How much of the humor is having some vague sense of the source material, or I mean, does does do you think that that exists as sort of a you know a nod to a culture memory already? And 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 if so, I think it is. Why is it? Why is that powerful? Do you think it's powerful? Because uh, that's the, uh, it's powerful to you like in particular so the way i think of it because i have no other thing to go on like i i don't you know that's all i know basically and so for me weirdly it's like all i want to do is connect to you meaning craig so i'm just like well i don't know how entertainment really works but in the meantime if i do jello biafra or you know mick jones at least fans of those bands are going to recognize it. And that's kind of great with me. I'm good with that. That's, that's, and the reason is because what people say to me afterwards, that feels so good when they, I see that someone recognizes it. And like, I can't believe you did Bob Mould as an impression. <laughs> right. And, and it's just a fun feeling in the moment, you know? But, but doing an impression must require, like you have to remember, you have some memory of what a um, certain mannerism or something like you, you're grabbing onto certain things, right? Yeah, and that's just, you know, it just, I don't even think about it. I just will know somebody and, you know, something in me goes like, oh, I think the way I, the dialogue I have with myself is I'll go, I think I could do an impression of them, you know? (laughs) And, you know, Jeff Spiegel was like that. I was like, I was like, oh, I think I could do an impression of him. And then there he was, you know. Right on. Yeah, I mean, and then there's things like, like with Ian Rubbish or the Crisis of Conformity skin, I think. That's something like, oh, I know exactly what that is. They're saying Alexander Haig. I, they're nailing it, you know. But Ferrisito, I mean, that is something. That's I am more vague on that, but it's like Tito Puente. It's um, it's completely Tito Puente. So, so in the '90s, 
I just went through this phase where I was like, I really was into Tito Puente and he was alive. And he would play. I remember he played up in Madison, drove up to Madison, and he played these kind of like jazz clubs or whatever, or like some summer fest. And I saw him, I don't know, four times or something. And every time he played, he's up front with the timbales. He did the same jokes every night. But in a way, but it looked like it wasn't the same jokes every night. It looked like, like, oh, this guy's like really having fun on stage and bantering with the audience. He would have conversations with the audience that now I realize he wasn't talking to anybody. Ah. It was a fake, you know, hey, you, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and you know, did the check clear? And uh, so that was like, um, uh, it was the same thing as doing like Crisis of Conformity. Same kind of thing where I was like, I completely lifted it from Tito Puente. When Trenchmouth broke up to when I guess you were on Saturday Night Live, I don't know how many years that was. I don't know, like, um, let's say, let's say... 96 to 2002. Okay, so when you look back in that period, is that look back as a slog or a whirlwind? Because obviously I knew things you were doing. You didn't just get on Saturday Night Live. You were doing things all along the way. Did, when you look back on it, did, do you remember that period as, as a, like a slog or being scary or being exciting? or How do you remember that? Whirlwind, definitely whirlwind, um, where... I had limited myself a lot. Like I was kind of like, man, I'm just not in one of those bands. I'm just not in Jesus Lizard. Oh, well. But, but then as I started um, opening these little doors, as people, as these little offers came in, do you want to do our variety show? We're doing a little thing downtown in New York and you want to come on as a character. Each little thing like that was exhilarating. Like, whoa, I, I didn't have any drums and I just did this little whatever, I, I guess seems like a stand-up act. And it really just, uh, everything just opened up in a way that was exhilarating and um, a surprise. I love like the surprise of life of like, whoa. And then another thing happened and then someone else would ask me to do something else. And before I knew it, there was not even a name for this occupation, but I was getting paid for like, I don't know what it is, you know, something kind of in music, kind of in comedy. I wasn't like a regular stand-up comedian. And the more I did characters the more one door after another opening up where, you know, all of a sudden I was auditioning for SNL. Yeah. I had this memory going into this that in like early, must've been like 2000, 2001, I was home. I was waiting for someone to show up to stay at my apartment and you came on the TV, you were doing a priest uh, and it was on a something like a Friday night thing, something. Yes. It was, might've been called Friday night. It was some NBC show that was like, it was like comedians. Yeah, and, and I remember being like, oh, awesome. And that's then when they showed up and they were ringing my doorbell and I was like, I can't walk, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, and I was like, Fred's on TV, can you? You know, and you know, I, I was so mad I had to walk away not realizing that, you know, I would have many other chances to see you on television. But that felt, that felt like a moment. That felt like someone I know is doing this really cool thing. Well, I mean, I had the same experience with you, you know, like, Every time, you know, because people would tell me about the whole study third person as if I didn't know you. So (laughs) it's such a funny thing because you really, I mean, you, it's just like you came up in conversation a lot, especially with SNL people. So like Amy would talk about you, Seth would talk about you, but I had the same experience and it almost seemed unbelievable for me to tell them, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know him, but it was too, it's too braggy to say that. So I just left it alone, but I was like, 
That's Craig Finn. No, no, I know, I know. I know, and that's Craig Finn. Man, you know. That was, I mean, that was like a, a really strange, cool thing. Because Amy, I think, got on first, right? And was she on before you? Uh, SNL? Yes, or, yeah. yes. And then couple, you joined by a couple years. shortly thereafter. And, I, you know, so then there was this SNL cast. It was like, I know two people on that. And I, they, I it's not surprising because they're both funny. Like, I guess funny people get on SNL, but, you know, it's also... Um, uh, well, that's so nice I, of you. <laughs> I have, I think, two questions that I want to ask. One is, uh, I'm really interested in, like, memories or stories that we tell ourselves, that we build up through our lives, that we find to be sort of incorrect during some point in our life. And you, when I was on Seth Meyers that week, when I did the guest vocalist, I think it was right when you were going to do this show about your grandfather. Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit about that and how it affected you? Because you learned your grandfather was Korean, right? And you correct previously thought he was Japanese? Correct. So um, my dad is German or he's, you know, he's culturally German. His mom is German, and he uh, he's born 1941. But his dad was this uh, Japanese choreographer. And, you know, they, they were allies with Germany. So this, this Japanese choreographer, this avant-garde artist, hooked up with my grandmother. They had my dad as a kid. And I've seen pictures of him, and I've met him a couple times. And he's this Japanese guy, Masami Kuni. And throughout my whole life... Um, I adopted that as part of my personality. I'm, you know, I'm very German, you know, um, I'm Venezuelan, but very German. I'm also very Japanese. I could tell. I could tell by the way I organize things. I'm just, that's just, it's in my DNA. And then when they told me, I mean, they really broke it down for me. They were like, this, so this show, it's called Finding Your Roots. They, um, they really do research. And they said, you know, we couldn't find your grandfather in for some reason, in elementary school. So they did all this research and they discovered that he is not Japanese. He's Korean. Uh, rich Koreans would send their kids to Japan to be educated. There was so much racism against Koreans that the thing to do was like, no, you're Japanese. Change your name. You are Japanese. So to find out that, like, I, I have no Japanese blood. I'm just this, you know, I'm, I'm Korean or half, or whatever, a quarter Korean. Yeah, that did really, um, it just undid like all these things that I thought about myself. I mean, although, you know, the, I, it, what was explained to me is like, you know, I wasn't completely wrong in that, like, I'm American, you know, and, you know, I, my roots don't go way into them, but I'm still an American person. So um, anyway, so that was what that was like. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's really fascinating to me, like, like to have these stories we tell ourselves get kind of... Uh, but I have one final question. This is one is I've been uh, I've been obsessed with for the past few years, and uh, you're the perfect person to ask. When you go to a rock show, do lead singers get laughs they don't deserve as a comedian? Because I find that there's a weird thing, myself included, when a lead singer says something, an audience instinctively laughs. Yeah. And it's only, they're just laughing, I think, that they're speaking at all. I think the audience is like, we're glad you're, you took a moment to do something you don't usually do. And it's like a different kind of laugh because it's none of it is ever can ever truly be funny. Oh, some of it can. I've seen Jeff Tweedy say some pretty funny stuff. And he's one of those. And, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, so I'm with you on that. And the thing that drives me crazy is now knowing show business, now I'm like, oh, buddy, I bet you do that one every night right <laughs> at that spot. I guarantee, I could tell by the tone that I'm like, that is, at least make it sound new. Like, you know, like that really sounds like you've done it at this exact spot every night. That's a Tito Fuente. I'm going to start doing that where I have conversations where I don't, you know, like someone's <laughs> yelling something that they're not really yelling. I love that. It really works. Cause I mean, how are you to know? You don't know who's in the front row, you know, but I I've always, I've been, I've, it's almost distracted me. I've been really obsessed. I mean, cause there are lead, funny lead singers, but then you're like, that was just talking. You know, like I'm going to tune my guitar and everyone's like, Whoa. yeah, yeah, yeah. We should do, we should come up with a list of what those usually are. Cause by the way, it is always a tuning guitar thing. Yeah. Something about the town, something about getting paid, something about, you know, the other, you know, the bass player or something, but it is, I think it lives mostly in tuning the guitar. I, I I also have a little bit of a theory that if you have like say an Irish accent, it goes one for like it's like now you're talking with an accent and that's even funnier. We love it. We love it. And yeah. I wonder if it's indie audiences, like or I mean, you know, are like our country audiences doing this too? I think country. I, here's my guess. I think country audiences might be like for them, it's like a different kind of joke. And I think for you know for I think I'm just guessing that like different genres have different types of jokes. Right, right. But sometimes it's not a joke. Sometimes it's just a statement and there's just a nervous laughter. Indie audiences, indie artists, I think their joke is, uh, I'm not usually good at talking, so uh, I guess this is an awkward moment. And I guess uh, I don't even, I think indie artists love to pretend they don't know how equipment works. So they like (laughs) to pretend like, yeah, I just got this last last week in Detroit, I don't even know if it, I plugged it in. I, you know, like this sort of like, and then everyone laughs along like, Oh, we, we love you. Yeah. 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 There is. Yeah. There's, there's definitely that. All right. Well, we got to the bottom of that. I think it's still going to, I'm still going to be obsessed with it. I am. I am too. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, oh, it was such pleasure. a pleasure to hang out and see your face and, uh, Likewise. uh and, uh, discuss some of this stuff because I think we felt similar. Yeah. We had a song about you, by the way. Oh, what what in was the it? Van, in the van. We had a ska song. Okay. And it just went, lift up. Lift up, lift up, pull up, pull up. And we just we sang that over and over. It's, it, it's, I mean, I'm not surprised. I'm not <laughs> surprised. Because uh, uh, you certainly made an impression on us as well. So. Oh, great. Um, thank you, Fred. Thank you. And that's how I remember it. A huge thanks to Fred for joining us and talking 90s touring and beyond. Fred continues to make me laugh and think. It was truly a joy to be able to hang with him. Also, a big thanks to you for listening and for all the great feedback we've gotten on the show so far. If you haven't already, please subscribe. We'll see you on the next edition of That's How I Remember It. I'm Craig Finn. Take care.